Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's show, some did not survive during the pandemic. Others are still trying to stay open. We'll talk about the state of small businesses owned by women and why black women entrepreneurs are now leading the rebound. Speaking of the pandemic, since 2020, homeschooling rates have doubled across the country. For black families, that number has more than quadrupled. What's behind this increase? Well, we'll talk all about that. Important community conversations coming up next. But first, this news. Atlanta is beginning the search for a new police chief after Chief Rodney Bryant announced his upcoming retirement in June. Bryant took over in 2020, but said last Friday he never planned to stay in the job long term. As I leave and transition into my next phase, that I am leaving this department in the strong, capable hands of executive leaders, as well as people who are are truly committed to this city. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens says the next police chief needs to be a good recruiter who can better implement community policing. Dickens went on to say there will be two town halls, listening sessions, and online surveys to hear from the community and rank-and-file officers. And while the search for the next police chief will be national, Mayor Dickens suggests he'll also be looking closer to home. In other news, the DeKalb County School Board is set to reconsider today a plan to modernize Druid Hills High School. Now, Martha Dalton reports the move comes after students posted a video showing water damage, mold, and crumbling infrastructure. The board scrapped a plan for upgrades at Druid Hills in February. Parents have been urging members to reconsider. Then came this. It rains real hard. We have another uh, plumbing problem. Human waste tends to flow up from up it and flood this area right here which is known as our senior picnic area, and we eat outside here every day. In a video posted on YouTube, students documented plumbing problems, broken fixtures, and moldy walls and ceilings. The video caught the attention of state officials who will visit the school today. Some students say they didn't realize things were so bad at first. Honestly, I kind of assumed that all high schools were a little bit gross. Sophomore Haley Martz is one of the students who helped make the video. I've never been to Dunwoody or Shambly or other high schools in DeKalb County, like personally, like toward them. But um, I kind of just assumed they were exactly like Druid Hills. But the response to the video has shown her that isn't true, she says. Junior Montrese Berry hopes the video prompts the school board to act. I just hope that they at least put us in good consideration and just see that we really, really need help up here. The board is expected to vote on a resolution that would include upgrades for Druid Hills and some other schools. Martha Dalton, WABE News. 
The state of Georgia is set to hold its first public meeting today on plans for that $5 billion Rivian electric truck factory east of Atlanta. As we hear from Emil Moffitt, a vocal group of neighbors, well, they've been sharply critical of the project. After local development officials became overwhelmed with feedback and regulatory hoops, they asked the state's economic development office to take over. Four planning committees were assigned to tackle different parts of the massive project. The Site Design and Environmental Committee holds its initial public meeting tonight at the Monroe campus of Athens Technical College. Among the concerns cited by neighbors, environmental and traffic congestion issues, as well as a lack of transparency. Originally, Rivian said it wanted to break ground on the plant by this summer, with an opening date of early 2024. Emil Moffat, WABE News. And the founding president of Clark Atlanta University has died. CAU officials say Dr. Thomas Cole passed away last week. In a statement, current president Dr. George French said of Cole, quote, he was a giant among the landscape of American higher education leaders and a celebrated colleague, particularly among the historically black college and university community and the many federal agencies that supported the sciences. Close quote. Now, Dr. Thomas Cole led the institution after the 1988 merger of Atlanta University and Clark College. He spearheaded the school's first capital campaign, exceeding its $9 million goal by raising $11.5 million. And funeral services will take place next Monday at Cascade United Methodist Church in southwest Atlanta. Dr. Thomas Cole was 81 years old. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Atlanta. According to a report from the House Committee on Small Business, black business ownership dropped by more than 40 percent between February and April of 2020. And that was the largest drop of any racial or ethnic group in the country. But now, two years into the global health crisis, yes, that pandemic, rebounding and recovery is at the forefront. And there's data from the University of California, Santa Cruz, that suggests black business ownership is now up by almost 30 percent on those pre-pandemic levels. And get this, black women entrepreneurs are leading the way. Despite being the fastest growing group of female entrepreneurs, the U.S., they still face many challenges. In fact, there was a LinkedIn recent poll that suggests more than a thousand black women entrepreneurs in the U.S. say they still have to find a way to make it during this pandemic. Well, joining me now to talk all about this, including that poll and the state of black women entrepreneurs during this time is Drew McCaskill. He's a LinkedIn career, culture, and economics expert. Joining me in studio, Kimmy Bennings, owner of Carrot Dog, an Atlanta-based vegan business. And I'm also joined by Lisa Bob, owner of Squash Blossom Boutique in downtown Decatur. Full disclosure, I haven't had a Carrot Dog, but I hear it's good. And I have shopped at Squash Blossom. So I just want everybody to know, don't send me an email saying, why didn't you have me? If I could get all y'all on the show, I would. Kimmy, first of all, did you bring any Carrot Dogs? 
Oh, my goodness. Saturdays from 12 to 4. Okay, here we go. Catch us at the window at the Met. Ah, this program You know is what over. I'm saying? Ah, stop it. <laughs> Listen, we got a lot to talk about, but I, I want to start with you for a moment, Kimmy. Uh, pre-pandemic, how was the business going? Wow. You know, we had just taken a courageous leap in 2019 to mm-hmm. launch Care Dog. Mm-hmm. And um, so we've been around for a while, you know, and just as we were kind of expanding our hours, you know, um, and getting the courage to kind of branch out from corporate America and more into the business, you know, we encountered the likes of COVID bubbling mm-hmm. underneath, you know. What did you think as we know restrictions were being in place and although Georgia didn't, sh- business didn't shut down totally, but how did you manage to shift? What was going through your mind and what to do? Wow. Well, the first thing that was going through our mind is like, how do we survive? And, you know, as it is being an entrepreneur, it takes a, a terrible amount of courage to do so. So you add that on top of that. And when you're, you're just launching, it really is easy to turn around mm-hmm. and go back. But because uh, I always share with people that the response of people trying care dog is always a motivation. Okay. It was a pool. And at that time we were um, caretaking my mother at the house, you know? So care dog began, began to be an oasis for my partner and I. Mm-hmm. So when we came to care dog, it was just like, wow, you know, just a, a woosah moment, you know, an opportunity to, to, to garner some smiles and to. So you saw the pandemic as a way to actually expand the marketing and promote and grow the business. Yeah, well, we we did, you know, but we were still only operating as we're operating now, maybe one or two days a week, mm-hmm. right? So while it was an oasis, it was a terrible challenge of how do we actually survive? Mm-hmm. You know, things like, all right, can we, we were forced into thinking, all right, do we do a, a drive up? Mm-hmm. You know, do we do curbside service? All of these things were bubbling at the same time. Trying to survive. Were you in a brick and mortar, a food truck? What were you, pop-ups? We were, yeah, we were at a pop-up. We started out in East Atlanta. And, um, you know, we've been at the Met now for almost three years. Okay. So it, w- it was kind of a take-up type of, take-away type of situation anyway for us. And we could, it was easy for us to run outside and as people were driving up. All right, hold that thought. I want to bring in Lisa Bob now. Lisa, what about you all? Pre-pandemic, how was Squash Blossom doing? <laughs> Squash Blossom was actually doing really well pre-pandemic. I've I've owned the store for seven years now, and each year, you know, you get a little smarter. You start <laughs> right. to anticipate, you know, the ebbs and flow of business and trends. And I was kind of feeling in a good place in terms of knowing what I needed, what I was going to need. Mm-hmm. Um, had my inventory ordered for the season because you know, in the apparel business, it's um, it's all about knowing ahead of time what people are going to want, anticipating. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, I had to order months ahead of time. Um, so I had my spring season, spring twenty twenty season, all mapped out, and of course, <laughs> the bottom <laughs> falls out of everything. Yeah, yes. And, um, you know, I'm on the hook to pay my suppliers, pay these designers and, you know, Squash Blossom, you know, we pride ourselves on operating with a lot of other small businesses and giving small design houses 
you know, a platform and an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want to turn around and tell them, well, I'm not going to pay for what I told you I was going to pay because it's Mm -hmm. this whole domino effect for the supply chain um, and have relationships with all those people. So it, it really was a very difficult position to be in. You know, I don't have the money to pay, but I don't want to stiff somebody else sure. on their money as well. Drew, you hearing these stories from Kimmy and Lisa? Sounds familiar? It sounds so familiar. I mean, um, when we took our first look at LinkedIn, we really wanted to understand um, some of the, you know, some of the a, a double click around these numbers that 17% of Black women um, said that they were in the process of starting a new business during the pandemic compared to 10% of white women compared to 15% of white men. So that means Black women were the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in the country. But only 3% of Black women founders were running mature businesses, and they were twice as likely to be turned down for business loans. Describe, hold your point, mature businesses. Explain that for our listeners, because I know someone is saying, what does that mean when you say about mature businesses? So when we talk about mature businesses, a mature firm is a company that's that's well-established in the industry with a uh, well-known product, loyal customer following. It can sometimes be characterized by the ability to hire other people, Mm -hmm. right? So a mature business is typically thought of as not a single owner-operated business where you've got now grown the business to the point to where you have full-time staff or that um, you are um, on equally... Um, established or on par from a profit standpoint as your competitors, right? And so the ability to hire and also year over year growth. Now, you all polled more than a thousand Black women entrepreneurs in the U.S. to find out how they were faring amid the pandemic. Give us a couple of nuggets that, that you all found in the results. Yeah, I think one of the most surprising things that we found um, was that um, so what we all what the black folks inside the organization already knew was that um, entrepreneurship and particularly side hustles are just part of black culture and the culture of black Americans. Mm-hmm. We all know people who are working full time jobs, but also have entrepreneurial endeavors that they're doing. But at the same time we found that one in three black female entrepreneurs with full-time jobs had not told their companies that they had these side businesses, largely because they felt like there's stigma attached to it. Like their companies won't necessarily understand that they can do this and do their current job at the same time. But the reason for why black women were becoming entrepreneurs was largely because they were not being appreciated at their full-time jobs. They were pursuing entrepreneurship so that they could have more flexibility and more control over their schedules. We also found that black women entrepreneurs were telling us that um, they had not gotten the career advancement that they felt like that they actually deserved Hmm. at work. And so they were saying, I'm going to go out and build my own table, right? I'm going to still sit at this table and work at this table to get my benefits and all the things that I need as I figure out this sort of hybrid approach to entrepreneurship where I work Uh, where I'm still working, but I'm also working on my side hustle as well, or I'm working on my entrepreneurial venture as well. Mm -hmm. And what Black women were also telling us was that that part of the rationale for that was during the pandemic, they actually had more time to think about why do I want to work 
what do I want work to look at, like for me? In so the we saw more women saying this is an opportunity for now, because, as you know, the the pandemic was illuminating to a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> I yeah. wanted to come back to my, my owners here for a second. Lisa Bob, let me come over to you. You are already in a business. Take us back, though. Let's get the origin story of, of Squash Blossom. Oh, yes. That's a good story, Rose, um, because it, it, it starts with a bit of a, of a disappointment or what, what might have been considered a disappointment. I got laid off from my corporate job, um, and I found myself in a position you know, where I was fortunate enough to get a severance package to kind of tide me over to the next opportunity. But it was a turning point in my life where I had to make the decision whether I want to invest in my own dream, you know, as opposed to always supporting someone else's vision, working as an employee in someone else's company that Mm -hmm. they founded or that they, you know, were leading. And it was a moment in time where I said, well, man, maybe I need to invest in myself and, and see if I can, if I can do this, I can always go work for someone else. But this is one thing I've always wanted was um, to be my own business owner, my own, my own boss. And, um, and I figured now, now is the time. So it was serendipitous that um, I had the opportunity and I actually purchased an existing business um, that I was a patron of squash blossom boutique has been in Decatur since 1999 and I was a loyal customer of it and I said if I ever had a boutique this is the type of store I'd want but of course I would do things a little bit different here and there uh, <laughs> put my own spin on it so um, so I did just that and like I said seven years in and I have I have no regrets it's been a fantastic journey. Kimmy, you st- told us earlier you were tired of the sort of the corporate hustle and the corporate setting. I, I imagine what Lisa Bob just said resonates with you. You wanted to be in, have your own business, do it your way. Absolutely. And I, I share that same sentiment because it, you, you find yourself in a space of a pandemic where you, you, you're really recollecting these thoughts about, you know, okay, I can stay in this particular role. You know, never advancing, doing the same thing, making, you know, decent, decent monies. But how is that contributing? So, you know, you add that in with the pandemic. Right. And then we have an enormous amount of time because all my contracts were canceled, which was a blessing in disguise because we were able to pour into my mother who were caregiving, you know, but it forces you to think about, wow, if I had the opportunity, what would I do? Simultaneously, I was in some business classes and actually coming from that business class, I thought to myself, wow, I would really like to, you know, get out of the, the, the catering or type of house thing. People, I was doing a soup initiative at that time. Mm-hmm. And to have my own space or something that was seemingly, you know, a business in and of itself. Why well, care, dogs? Because like I tell you, Kevin Rinker, our engineer, is all smiles about these carrot dogs listen what <laughs> it was tell our listeners about these carrot dogs these the the carrot dog it, it came alive that particular evening because i got a call um to say hey we have a saturday open you know i mean it was all serendipitous so i said okay and then i thought about well what would i do and i thought about carrot dog that that came to me back in 2015 as i was traveling i was at a little space called peace and loaf 
in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And the chef and I had an instant bond because we were both culinary, you know, artists. And she invited me back and said, hey, I'm working on something. And I said, okay, cool. She said, I want you to try something out. So she brings out this carrot, and she's asked me to taste it and give my honest feedback. And um, I have a southern palate, let me just say that, okay? So there was some variation of differences, I think, based upon region, Mm -hmm. but it had a striking resemblance of a hot dog. She, it was almost like, I don't know if it was Morpheus or, you know, some entity of that sort. She said, go back and create your own recipe. You will do this in Atlanta. It's a, it's a carrot. It's a carrot. Impersonating a hot dog. It's literally a whole organic carrot. We make a brine of about 16 different okay. spices. We marinate the dogs. We grill the dogs. And it literally has the taste and texture of a hot dog. Rose, I kid you not. You have to try the thing. I'm, I'm totally <laughs> like, you, you know, it's got to you know, it's got to come through the ancestors so, or something. Why don't we have a carrot dog pop up at Squash Blossom? See, see how I'm bringing sick. folks together, Drew? <laughs> see how this works out? This is better than LinkedIn. This is a- no joke. Well, it ain't better than LinkedIn, but I, <laughs> I want to be there to taste them carrot dogs. Yeah, so. We got to arrange that. Did. We got to arrange that. And it really is about community when you think about the pandemic and how it's it also is really fertile ground for uh, black, not only black women in business, but black small business or micro businesses to come together. Because in this thing, too, you, you're learning as you go, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. I'm going to ask Drew a question. Drew, in this survey, did your respondents talk about, we know, I'm sure, raising capital was probably a number one concern, but also connecting with other black-owned businesses, particularly for women. Was that also important in terms of that community? Oh, it was super important. Um, one of the things that, that came up uh, repeatedly was um, Black women entrepreneurs wanted to find community and they wanted to get support, right? Like they wanted to figure out, hey, I would just love to have a community of other entrepreneurs so that we could, one, support each other, figure out ways to do exactly what you just talked about, which was have like, let's cross pollinate our customer bases so that we can grow this ecosystem a lot more. Black women also said at the rate of 68% that they wanted to have build community and find resources so that they could grow as an entrepreneur and that they were really believed that community and doubling down on over-serving Black people and other Black women was the right pathway for them to be successful. And they were looking for opportunities where they could learn from each other. But Mm -hmm. the top things that they wanted to learn, business management and soft skills, marketing and public relations, and they wanted to learn about financial literacy. The piece that came through over and over was funding. But number two behind funding was community and peer-to-peer mentorship. Mm. The voice you hear is Drew McCaskill. He's a LinkedIn career, culture, and economics expert. I'm also joined by Lisa Bob, owner of Squash Blossom Boutique in downtown Decatur, and Kimmy Bennings, owner of Carrot Dog, an Atlanta-based vegan business. Well, I, I want to come back over to you, Lisa, for a moment, because when you think about when you started in 1999, did you have that community? You had the funding. You talked about that a little bit, but did you have that community? Well, so just to be clear, um, Squash Blossom started in 1999, but I became the owner in 2015. Oh, So that's okay. when I purchased it from the original founders. Um, so I, I had a little bit of community. I had some mentors 
in the retail space. And I had to seek those people out. And I actually, you know, you'd be happy to hear, I did use LinkedIn. Um, and what I what I discovered though, it's funny because I, I had prior to coming into this, I had a 20 year career in IT, which, you know, you would think um, is probably the opposite career to what I'm doing now, fashion retail. Um, but I had an extensive network through LinkedIn. Uh, probably, you know, I used to get the emails that say you have, you can connect with over a million people, you know, based <laughs> on your connections. But when it came time for me to try and figure out who did I know that, that knew the um, owner of Fabric, you know, Dana Spinola, who had, is a local Atlanta success story in the fashion, you know, boutique business. Um, I had one person in common with her of all my hundreds of first level connections wow. in atlanta only one person so it really told me gosh this is a whole different universe i'm about to step into that um, not only do i know very little about but i also know very few people who know anything about this <laughs> uh, so it was really it really struck me like this is going to be important to build a whole new network um because i'm one of those people that relies on my network i'm i'm always looking for help and ideas and feedback and suggestions so that became kind of first and foremost the thing that that i felt i needed in order to be successful kimmy what about so I'm you i'm still on the hunt you still on the hunt kimmy what about you mentors <laughs> yes I've, I've actually just been attracting a few mentors i've i earlier on i I knew that this was a lane that I had not visited. You know, I'd done many things in Atlanta, but to start a restaurant, I was like, okay, you know, I'm an artist first, which was, was really what's the leap. Um, just now, I've attracted some cohorts along the way, um, some business cohorts, Invest Atlanta and the Guild um, currently, and also um, with um, Create Atlanta with James Harris. Um, and also currently in a cohort with Emory University, the EIIG program, which is also a loan program, but it also pairs you with students who are in the business realm. That's been quite helpful. Mm -hmm. I must agree with the gentleman, yeah, that um, largely, I guess it's funding or some, sometimes even with grant funding and some of those initiatives, because we haven't been operating uh, full time, you know, we're just out of the eligibility or something of the sort. Um, I've attracted... A, a few great mentors here recently that um, that have been guiding this process. I think that what would also be really helpful is whatever arena the small business is in, perhaps a, a, a dedicated peer-to-peer, -peer, I think the gentleman said, like consultant in that arena. Mm -hmm. Like how do we get to like where we are in Carrot Dog? How do we launch our retail side? We have a whole retail side that's already ready to go. Um, how do we launch that? Where's the carrot farm? You know, who can <laughs> gotcha. who who can shave the carrots down? You know, we can do a limited amount of, um, pro, you know, production and various things like that. But when we're beginning with the end in mind, having not only our said location where you can come get like vegan dogs, but also a retail side where you can get your DIY dogs. Mm -hmm. How do we sustain that? You know with also uh, creating jobs as well. Speaking of sustaining, and I'm going to, uh, Andrew, Drew, as we prepare to wrap up, I want to ask you this because it's great when we have the statistic that 
Okay, black women entrepreneurs are leading this rebounding effort in small businesses. What needs to happen for them to sustain? And so they can have these stories 10, 5, 10 years down the road like Kimmy and Lisa. What's key? Yeah. Yeah. One of the key things is just building is building out that network before you need it. I think that that's really important. Um, uh, people talk about the fact that every 15 seconds, somebody gets a job on LinkedIn. That's a fact. Every 15 seconds, somebody gets a job on LinkedIn. But it's also an opportunity for you to start now looking at how do I get build connections and get those soft introductions to other people who are in businesses and spaces where I want to eventually take my my business or my career to that piece about reaching out to people and saying, hey, being really specific, uh, busy people need specificity. So ask very specific questions like, hey, I want to ask you about this or I want to mm-hmm. ask you about that. But also the what we found is that black women don't hold their contacts and don't hold the information to themselves. If asked, they will share. I think that's the biggest thing to do is to start the process of asking other other entrepreneurs. How did you break through? Lisa Bob, if this was Back to the Future and you could go back and tell Lisa Bob 2015, give her some pointers, some tips about now you've got Squash Blossom, what would you say? (laughs) Take everything in stride, one thing at a time. I mean, you know, you you plan, you have your plan A, your plan B, your plan C, and it's always going to be some sort of hybrid of all of the above. You had to go through those first three plans in order to get to the one that worked. So just taking things in stride and being flexible mm-hmm. has been kind of the saving grace. Mm-hmm. Kimmy, I'll give you the last word on that. You heard what Lisa said. Listen, I, I'm, I'm taking notes. <laughs> I'm taking notes um, and just really feeling inspired, you know. And, and when I think about feeling alone, I think about women like Lisa and, you know, and Squash Bus and, and other women who have done it, you know, especially when you have a bigger why, mm-hmm. you know, and as black people, it is OK for us to have a bigger why. It is OK for us to have franchisable opportunities. It is OK for us to sit in boardrooms. You know, it is OK for us to create change in community through whatever mechanism. And, you know, we just encourage you to come and uh, try that care dog. You, you know, we're, we're, we're changing the community one care dog at a time, Rose. I mean, you, you, you just got to you got to try it out. Like one one care dog at a time. Kimmy yes. Bennings, owner of Care Dog and Atlanta based vegan business. Lisa Bob, owner of Squash Blossom Boutique in downtown Decatur. Drew McCaskill, a LinkedIn career, culture and economics expert. Thank you all for taking the time to talk about this very important topic in our community. Thank you all. Now, I'm serious. Carrot dog pop up and net squash blossom lisa out look i love it i don't know how I to make it. it happen just make it happen well you know we're we gonna, gonna make it happen we gonna make it happen we're gonna make it happen wow thank you let bro. me know i'll post it. it on linkedin too yeah absolutely brother i need to talk it. to you yes. apparently everybody gets a job every 15 seconds on linkedin absolutely right? absolutely Drew, I, need to, I need to see the date on that, Drew. Yeah, we're going to expand. Happy to send Drew. it over we, to you. We, we use it. We, we're going to use it. We're going to utilize that. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you all. Take care. Sounds good. Bye bye, Rose. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Rose.
And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Pre-pandemic, it's now a measurement used to distinguish the difference, obviously, before strict COVID-19 mandates and now. For example, according to the U.S. Census, homeschooling rose during the pandemic. Georgia overall saw an increase from 7 to 16 percent in May of 2020. But here was something else. This was also most notably among black households. From spring 2020 to this past fall, homeschooling black families increased from 3.3 percent to 16.1 percent here in the nation. What's behind this? Well, let's talk all about it. Let's welcome Amber O'Neill Johnston, founder of Heritage Homeschoolers. That's a local nonprofit support group for black homeschoolers and their families. And she's also the author of A Place to Belong, a guide for families of all backgrounds to celebrate cultural heritage, diversity and kinship while embracing inclusiveness in the home and beyond. And also Reagan Mayfield is a human resources professional. Now Reagan will share the decisions behind why she and her husband opted on a different education setting for their children. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Reagan, I'll start with you. Prior to the pandemic, and you don't have to mention the school district unless you want to, Mm -hmm. but how would you describe your kids' education environment? Uh, I would say it was a good educational environment. We had not considered homeschool prior to the pandemic. Um, So we were fortunate to be in a very good solid school district and it felt like it was well-funded and it was going well. Do you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it it was a good environment, I would say. What were the grades, Mask? Yep. So I have two children, but just one school age child. So my oldest was doing well, um, A's and B's primarily. What what grade, mask? Yep. Uh, Let's see. He's in fifth grade now. So he was about in third and fourth grade at the time we started considering it. And then the pandemic hit and kids were going to have to log on and Mm -hmm. it's going to be a virtual setting and all that. How did your your little one that time. How was that transition? How was that adjustment? So there are a couple of things that I noticed. Um, First off, he did not enjoy (laughs) the virtual learning environment. Uh, No one in our household enjoyed it. It was very difficult to manage. It was very difficult. Uh, I work from home. My husband works from home. And although he was now at home, it was still difficult we weren't in control of our schedule Mm -hmm. uh, because the school was doing it. So it was a very difficult to manage. On the other hand though, there seemed to be a little bit uh, less anxiety, I guess I would say a little bit less um, stress and pressure on him Mm -hmm. uh, being at home. You know, we can, you sit in your pajamas, you're at home, you're with mom and dad all day, Uh, grandma is here. So it, it just seemed to be a little bit more of a comfortable environment for him. Okay, hold that thought because I want to bring in now Amber O'Neill. Johnston, welcome, to, Amber. Welcome to the program. I was speaking with Reagan. She was talking about you know the adjustment challenges for her third grader at the time. It was it was some challenges. I imagine you've heard this from some parents about when kids had to go virtual at the height of the pandemic. Definitely. That was, um, you know, kind of my phone, my email, everything was kind of going bonkers with parents looking for support and help trying to figure out how do we bridge this gap from, you know, kind of being more hands off to being the primary people responsible for our children's everyday lessons. 
Well, when you when they reached out and they were looking for answers, I guess you weren't surprised then because you you knew that this was probably going to happen. More parents might be looking for a different type of an alternative setting for kids, especially not just because, well, obviously the pandemic. But listen, you know, folks probably wanted smaller settings, you know, smaller groups. You were anticipated that. Yeah, definitely. And I was looking forward to it um, because I, I'm passionate about that. That's part of our mission is to support families so they feel like they can do this and that they can do it for short term, medium or long term. But I think I was a little bit surprised at the amount, the number of inquiries and people reaching out that, um, you know, it was overwhelming, not in a, a bad way, mm-hmm. but in a good way. And these were households of different ethnic groups and races and you saw did you see an increase in terms of black households black families yes definitely and i mean i have kind of a foot in both worlds in the broader homeschool world i speak and write and so on so i was getting calls and people reaching out from everywhere but specifically because i support black homeschoolers in our area um yeah i was fielding calls from them and emails and people were looking for some people were looking for direction and instruction but a lot of people were just wanting to know that they weren't doing it alone Mm -hmm. reagan let's go back if you can to the conversation you had with your husband and you all said, let's try homeschooling. What what was that like? You know, I brought it up to him just sort of casually thinking there's no way he's going to go for this. Uh, he's very much a traditionalist. He's going to say no and shoot it down. And he was all in immediately, which was a little bit shocking. <laughs> um, but based on his educational background um, from his childhood, he immediately could see the benefits um, and how this could really help instill some confidence and give our son a really solid foundation moving forward. And then what was the next phase? Did you Google homeschooling in Georgia? Did you reach out to people? That you is exactly Google. what I did. I was It was all about Google. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the University of Google and YouTube um, and was so fortunate to come across Amber. Not sure I would have actually uh, jumped into homeschooling had I not found Amber and her group. Uh, What were the biggest concerns you and your husband had about for your your son? There were a couple. First off, it was um, being a working parent and trying to manage both homeschooling, being primarily the educator and working at the same time. I wasn't sure if that was something that was commonplace. Um, And then the socialization and just building community. uh, Those were my two primary concerns. Amber, how familiar are those concerns to you when you hear what, what Reagan said? Yeah, I think that's, she, she hit on the core for a lot of parents and especially, you know, within the black community, there are, um, parents are typically working in some way. They're either working full-time, part-time business owners. Um, and then the broader homeschool community, you see that too, but I see it more, it's more prevalent in our community. So having that concern, like, can I do this? How does it work with the scheduling perspective? And then the idea that their kids aren't just, you know, sitting in the house, especially during COVID, you know, not having interaction with other students, Um, And that's what we're here for. So I feel like, you know, part of my role is to counsel parents and coach them, show them how they can do this, that they can do it. And the other part is for me to say, bring your kid, you know, bring your kid. I'll bring my kids. It'll be all good. Reagan, that first, I guess that first official day of homeschooling, (laughs) 
what is your little one? <laughs> Did he say, you the teacher? <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah, he was like, what is this change? Obviously, at that point, he'd had several years in elementary school. He's very social. And he's like, we're just going downstairs. This is what we're doing. <laughs> this is it. And I was like, this is it. This is it. Um, but we've really adjusted well. And as Amber said, having that community, being able to take field trips uh, with a broader group of students, he's developed new friendships. It, it's worked out quite well. So you've, you, you found a homeschooling community little pod, if you will. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a broad group that Amber um, runs. Um, but within the group, obviously, there are little subgroups of people who are, you know, who have children similar in age to your children, things like that. So it's very conducive to developing those friendships. Amber, other than concerns and, and health concerns with, with COVID and all of that during the pandemic, any other reasons you think why we've, we're seeing this increase in Black families opting for homeschooling? Well, I think a big reason is parents are wanting to have more control over the way that their children are learning and what they're learning. So they tend to want to have a more diverse, culturally affirming um, curriculum and lessons. And I think they're feeling that that is, you know, becoming less of an option in school. And so I think that's the biggest thing that I hear. Well, what are those nuggets, if you will, that you want parents of, of any ethnic group or race to understand first before making that decision about homeschooling or doing it at home or sending your, your, your kids to a, a homeschool environment, another house? What do you want them to really think about and consider? Well, I think first is that this is a high parent involvement proposition. So even if your child is spending time at a co-op or a hybrid, you are still the primary educator. You're the one making the decisions and everything that they're learning and being exposed to is being funneled through you. So you have to have, you know, a higher than normal level of commitment to um, to marking out your child's learning path. I think that's the first thing because I always tell people the most important thing in this journey is you. You are the guide and you're the gatekeeper and all the things. So I think once a parent is very committed to making this happen, the other factors are so varied that they become less of an issue. Um, the other thing I would say is just, you know, to build early confidence in listening to your child and working with them so you guys can together come up with a plan um, that honors who they are, who your children are, and also gives you life as well. It's really a partnership. Are there, excuse me, are there a certain set of, circumstances for I mean listen I, I think I could probably be homeschool kindergarten but the way the the new math has changed I, I have to stop probably at third grade I'm telling you because I tried to work with my nephew and I was lost so I'm wondering also it does it you have to think about something different when it comes to whether it's elementary middle and then obviously high school as well well you know the, the beautiful thing about the homeschooling community you can be as much of the actual primary teacher for any subject as you want to be. There are so many online options. There are class homeschool classes you can take your kids to that kids are doing AP biology labs and calculus with PhD teachers. You know, you can outsource, I guess is what I'm saying, anything you don't feel comfortable with. But the funny thing is that, you know, I always tell people I'm three nights ahead of my oldest student. 
you figure it out. You, you know, one thing we know, we, we're lifelong learners as parents and we know how to research and learn things and stay a, a few steps ahead and our kids pull us along as well. So it's not as scary as it seems. Uh, I don't know the new math either. I still teach my kids old school. It worked for me. <laughs> right. I feel like it and we turned that. out okay. I mean, come on, carry, yeah, the, carry the one. Where can you go wrong? Uh, I'll get an email yeah. about that. Amber, I did have a, for speaking of emails, I have a listener who wants to know, is there any data that suggests homeschool kids are matriculating at the same level and going off to college as in a traditional setting? Yeah, absolutely. And colleges are recruiting homeschool students. Look at that. So I get a lot of um, calls. I was at a college not too long ago for their e that evening program or they're inviting, you know, homeschool parents. Um, they want these students. Um, they typically do very well in college. They're used to independent learning. Um, they're they've typically been uh, learning uh, a bit on their own before they're entering into college. Uh, typically our high achievers in terms of being very passionate about certain areas, high confidence levels. Um, so not only are they getting into college and other things, they're doing entrepreneurial moves and traveling, um, all types of things that you'll see within the homeschool world. Reagan, as far as your son, is there a topic that he would prefer you not even touch or how's that working out for you? What's your favorite topic? Well, we do not. I do not touch math. Uh, speaking of new math, that is not something that I do. That is very much outsourced in our homeschool. Uh, I would say his favorite topic, he will tell you, are he enjoys digging into current events. Um, he's in fifth grade right now, and he loves to know everything that's happening in current events. And he really enjoys our religious studies. That's Those are his two favorites. And he, you are going to keep him in the homeschooling environment as long as he... As long as it. he enjoys it and, and it's working well for the family, we will do so, yes. Amber, I have another uh, question from an emailer who wants to know, can you suggest homeschooling options for uh, kids with special needs that require special needs, as they put it? Oh, wow. It's interesting because um, families with children with special needs, they over-index in the homeschooling world. And a lot of that is because their needs weren't um, necessarily being met always, um, sometimes to the fault of the school, but sometimes just nature. I mean, to have that one-on-one -on -one attention that a group environment can't give. So we have a lot of students, even within our group, heritage homeschoolers, with um, students with special needs um, in terms of ADHD and other things that uh, makes it a lot easier because they're among family um, and among adults who um, want to see them succeed and can give them the extra attention and latitude that they may not get elsewhere. But you have special programs, there are mm -hmm. co-ops for that, ways to train parents and um, also our local school community. My children had um, services through for speech through our local school district. So they partner with homeschool families to get all of the kids in our community the things that they need. As we've heard, we prepare to wrap up. Amber, I'm curious, and I think I know the answer to this, but when we talk about that 3.3% to 16.1% in terms of homeschooling for black families, you anticipate that's just going to keep increasing. 
I do. And the, I mean, because we love it. Right. And I think families are coming over and they're seeing, wow, this incredible amount of freedom. They're seeing their children blossom and bloom in ways that they had never anticipated. And they're seeing that return to um, the ability of the nuclear family to kind of hang in there together and spend more time together for the pace of life to slow down. Um, I don't see that trend going anywhere but up. Regan, what do questions do other parents have of you? Reagan, I'm sorry, that, that other parents have of you when they are thinking about perhaps possibly homeschooling their kids. Do you say, well, if first all, pray and make sure that, you know, if it's a two-parent household, y'all agree, we don't want any fussing yeah. going on. <laughs> Absolutely. You're right on it, right? Make sure everyone is in agreement. I think it's just, it's always a puzzled look. You're not really doing this, are you? Uh, you're not really working and doing this. How do you balance both? There's always a lot of interest in the balance of working and homeschooling. How do you balance? Person- How do you balance? You know, I I will say that I'm very fortunate that I work from home, so that helps. I do have a little bit of an older student, so to Amber's point, um, he has, over the last year, developed a lot of independence in his work, and it is homeschooling, so I'm no longer tied to a Monday through Friday homeschool or schooling schedules. So sometimes it's a Saturday afternoon, Mm -hmm. uh, we're doing a lesson or something like that, so. And... For your field trips, did you think about visiting a radio station and, and, you know, sitting there with a public radio host? I don't know. I just thought I would. It's an excellent idea. (laughs) I would love to do that. And this is just one, (laughs) we can accommodate that. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You will be hearing from me soon. (laughs) I am curious, what kind of field trips were you all, have you all been able to, to take? Oh, we go to the art museum um, and to science and technology. We have Mm -hmm. speakers come in, the botanical gardens, the aquarium, the Fox Theater, the Cobb Energy Center, you name it. If there's something going on, we are trying to have our children right there front and center. What about the zoo? Yeah, we go to the zoo too, the park, all of the things. And sometimes we go out of town. We've gone and gotten a group of hotels in Birmingham and gone to the museum. We, we've we been to North Carolina to see the Biltmore Mansion and a big, huge Airbnb. So we're very creative. We like to get the kids out and keep them busy. That is great. Amber O'Neill Johnston, founder of Heritage Homeschoolers, it's a local nonprofit support group for black homeschoolers and their families, and also uh, Reagan Mayfield, and who's what's your Mash, your son's first name? Because I've kept calling him like the kid, and that just Griffin. does not seem right. What's his name? Griffin. Griffin. All right. Well, best of luck to him. And when you want a field trip, just just come on through. Appreciate you Will both do. taking the time. Th- good conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. He rides a bike and he likes carrot dogs. So reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org, and we'll have links to all of the from all the conversations we had today. If you missed any of this program, though, it will of course be online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. in our rebroadcast and our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.